One of, uh, one of our favorite presenters uh, is on stage now. Philippe Jordan is the president of CFM uh, Hedge Fund based in Paris. And uh, he'll be uh, talking with Alex Poimos from our team, head of content, uh, market narratives and trading momentum. Please welcome our next session. Thank you. Thanks, Colin. I guess this is a really interesting uh, conversation that started probably a couple of months ago that we just had a, a random chat over some wine on the afternoon about sort of markets and market narratives. Um, and that's where this actual initial topic came, came from, and just sort of a, a really random assortment of sort of thinking about markets and um, the role that sentiment plays and how market narratives play into sort of the market effects and momentum um, and just sort of that interaction with sort of even market microstructure. So that's where the, the broad base for this session came from. So we're going to cover a whole range of um, areas around sort of market narratives, signals, noise, momentum. We will have Slido.com um, again in, in process. Please put your name and I can then refer to you. We can ask the question um, from the floor. But I guess I'll start off the conversation, Philippe, in terms of really where this this conversations start in terms of market narratives, you know, there is this constant feel for wanting to understand what the market's doing, what noise is telling us in the market, how do we understand geopolitical effects, which we saw in the very first polling, you know, ever it was 60% um, of people are worried about geopolitical risk. Um, can you give a bit of context in terms of you know, the importance of that um, and how we think about um, these sort of market risk factors, I guess, or, or what's important and what's not as we think about markets. Sure, sure, sure. Thanks, Alex. Did you bring any wine? I mean, no? <laughs> You're the one with the wine. <laughs> uh, when I wake up in the morning, I can do two things. I can go straight to the P&L overnight and look at the P&L, how it's distributed, and look at the risk. Or I can open up Bloomberg and I can read the latest news story about Saudi Arabia, China, Donald Trump. And to be perfectly frank, I, I tend to do both in, in some disorder uh, because I'm a human being and the overnight stories are, are somehow satisfying, as in want this wanting to know what the current narrative is, this need to sort of feel plugged in to what other people are talking about uh, is, I think, profoundly human. Uh, the more important thing that I should be doing is actually looking at the PNL, its distribution, and the risk. And I tend to do that and, and go look at news in order to try and put things into context or to understand how the risk is moving in the portfolio. Uh, but I, I think that, by and large, uh, paying attention to the overall narrative uh, of, of the marketplace is probably not a very useful uh, occupation or, or use of my time uh, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Um, because at the end of the day, it, it, it doesn't affect um, my portfolio and I think our portfolios in aggregate all that much. Um, yes, they're tail events. The property of tails is that you have to live with them as opposed to try and forecast them most of the time because as we know, forecasting tails is, is pretty difficult. Um, that's not to say that there's not some information in that noise and that we, we don't live in a world where we don't have enough technology to actually extract some information out of this large uh, market narrative that does contain information. Uh, but to extract it, um, I think you have to go about it by di 
model and you have to do it systematically um, and you have to use things like natural language processing, have large samples, um, the type of views that you can tag uh, and, and understand semantically in machine language, and possibly at that point, um, you, you can start building models that can not understand the narrative as much as perhaps do some tagging, going perhaps one step further in, into semantics. Uh, and I think this has been going on, it's not new, 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 but I think a lot of people have been doing it for the last five, seven, or eight years, and it's evolved, and it's evolving rapidly. Um, as in you have expert networks that have been built um, by various firms successfully where people actually create their own networks of experts, uh, including uh, analysts at investment banks or others that contribute uh, signal uh, and, and they're finding actual signal in, inside of these networks. Um, will it be possible to actually find signal uh, in um, conference calls by, by CEOs? Um, yes, a lot of people have done it um, on a text basis. Um, it doesn't feel neutral, positive, or negative. It's, 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 it's a way to model. Um, are we going to add video, um, not only text? Are we going to add audio also? Yes. Um, so I think sentiment uh, in the age of machine learning is going to become much more sophisticated. And if your, your sample size, again, is, is large enough, can extract some results. But our individual need to try and make sense out of chaos every morning, that is very human, but not particularly useful. Okay. I know, I know you say that, but unfortunately, all the people in the room that are, especially on the asset owner point of view, they've got CIOs, they've got investment committees that are all pushing them. Yeah. How are you considering this? How are you considering the run? How are you considering the trade war? there's this constant push from the asset owner point of view to be doing something, you know, and, th and they're asking their asset managers, what, what do they do, right? So you have to understand, I think, the broader context to, to asset owners, the, the confines or the framework that they think about these sort of events. So how do you explain, you know, how do they explain to a trustee board, for example, that these factors maybe are not so important? Well, Asset owners are not aliens compared to us. We also have ICs and we're human beings and we manage complex portfolios. And yeah, we pay attention to the fact that Korea might be nuked overnight because we do have activity in, in Korea. But instead of trying to get involved in some sort of super macro decision regarding whether we're gonna continue trading or not in Korea, uh, we have a level of risk that we're comfortable with within a broad portfolio that's diversified in Korea. There are some actual infrastructure risks that we're not willing to take, but if it, if it doesn't actually affect the direct infrastructure of the market, our, our tendency is going to be to maintain the risk, is to own a portfolio of risk that we believe to be diversified and to have uncorrelated characteristics over time. And yes, tails exist, try and size our, our overall exposure to big tails in a manner in which we can, we can survive it, and not only survive it, but feel comfortable about having to go through a particular tail. Um, asking any group of people, however smart they are, to make a very large um, life-changing decision under pressure is asking for trouble. I mean, 
not going to get good outcomes by having a group of eight, 12, 13 people having to make a decision under the gun that is going to have massive effects on their portfolio. That's an interesting question, maybe towards the end, in terms of the framework that you can actually apply to try and reduce the emotional effect of, of this discussion. Well, it, the, the way we do it is to own our risk. So we, we, we spend a lot of time trying to understand our risk in, in, in the different businesses that we're involved in, and then we own it. Uh, we, we don't want to shy away from it. We want to own it. Uh, the only reason we have to actually reduce risk is if we feel, um, and we have substantial data uh, to back up that feeling, that we're looking at structural alpha decay. But that's not a decision that you're going to make under the gun. You're going to look at alpha decay over a long period of time, and unfortunately, you're going to have to experience lower and lower sharps uh, to get to the point where you have some certainty, because we never have absolute certainty, because our lives are, are finite, uh, that, that you need to do something. Um, the only caveat is, is, is really market infrastructure risk. That's, that's a different type of risk, meaning your banks aren't going to give you your money back, they're going to steal your collateral, uh, all the stuff that, that we saw in 08, uh, that, that's, those are different types of decisions. Um, there's, there's one kind of exception to this, I think. Um, there's some comments that were made at, at my table that were quite interesting regarding uh, trend following into or, or doing momentum on, on fixed income, um, and that it was far easier to do it uh, in the context of a CPA than a real asset owner. And, and I couldn't agree more with that comment, uh, because as a real asset owner, owning negative coupons for buying, buying securities with true negative coupons that are going to click, I have, I have a lot of difficulty understanding that concept. Um, owning a futures contract that you're going to roll uh, with a system, um, and yes, implicitly, you know, that negative coupon is, 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 is also a tax on the return, um, I, I think is far, far easier. Um, so if, th if there's one, one thing that I think is, is structurally very difficult to come to terms with is coupon, negative coupon carrying sovereign fixed income. I, I, I think that is, um, that's very interesting and quite exceptional. Um, and, and I think that's why we're all a little bit disappointed by that. Go ahead. Go so ahead can, can we go to a question about, so you talk about market infrastructure as a big problem. But what about the market microstructure as we sort of move in? You know, I know you can say sentiment and, and market narrative isn't, you know, we, we need to sort of step back and, and try and to, you know, distinguish between signal and noise in a, in a big way. But ultimately, you know, it's the wisdom of the crowd that sets the market. It sets the market liquidity. Um, and so I guess my question is sort of a, in playing devil's advocate, you know, when you're getting all these very large conglomerate asset owners, you know, in the world, and they're all trading the same. You know, is this now going to have a potential impact on the market microstructure and the ability for some of these strategies to keep playing out in the, in the long term, on the momentum strategies, for example? I want to be clear about labels. When, when I hear microstructure, I'm thinking about market impact. And when, when I, I think about market impact, I think about something I can measure very clearly, as in we, we, we measure it constantly system, and uh, if, if we observe uh, a, a 
big change in our marketing package, which is what's called you know, standard deviation or two, we're going to pay attention to that. But, but not through a narrative, not through a, an inference mechanism, but through the actual measurement of what our, path, our market impact is uh, in certain markets or at the portfolio level. Let's go to a question since we've already got questions early. Where's Michael Summons or something? Do you want to raise your question? Can you grab the mic? Oh. Oh, it was around sort of the investors moving to more shorter term thinking. Yep. Push the button. Yep. Um, that was a bit loud. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Just short termism is, is one thing that comes in and makes it a bit harder to look through short-term volatility and you're from the you know the manager side and you have investors allocating in do you find that they're a bit more short-term in their expectations where in the past they may be able to look through any sort of short-term losses and suddenly they're on your back and i assume so are consultants about why you know losses are there and they're you know, a bit harder to fend them off that's a great question and i'll tell you why on average i i would say no but Recently, within a year, uh, we had a very large institutional investor telling us they were redeeming because they didn't like the performance. And I said, okay, but you know, we got to think long term. Yeah, but we don't have any problem thinking long term as long as short term results in yields. <laughs> but which, <laughs> which is, is, is the true, true answer. Um, I think we're all tilted to the short term. We're all talking about trend, how trend has been disappointing in various forms. Um, David Harding was in town last week declaring it dead. I don't think it's dead. Um, I don't think it's disappointing. I think it's a 0.5 sharp strategy. And if you take a 0.5 sharp strategy and you draw random distributions of it, it's not going to look great for periods of five to seven years. If you actually look at trend over the very long term, a century, there's a period in the 30s where it's, it's flat. And when you say, oh, it was flat 50 years ago, it's not a big deal, it's one thing. When, when it's flat and you spend 10 years of real life in it, it's, it's another. Um, I, I think we, we all overestimate and extrapolate recent performance. It's, it's again, that's, that's a very human trait. We all do it. I do it. My partners do it. Um, you know, we, we, we have some strategies that will roll with a sharp of two for eight, ten years. Complicated, it's that hard, et cetera. And you start believing that it's structural. And it's not. It's not. There's, there's some randomness to the fact that it's there. And you have to keep working and taking new risks and getting involved with new technologies and you have to shake up some of your dogmas um, on a generational basis in order to get to the next generation of, of models. Um, so the answer is I don't think we're short term. I think we're, we're, we're all inclined to extrapolate recent information uh, on when it's good and, and also when it's bad. We'll switch to table eight because Gerard Palavik, you had a question that was similar on the same, same track actually in terms of uh, stakeholder management do you want to i think it's bringing it back to the the concept of narrative and you said that you know a lot of people do look at the narrative and and it's really to my mind it was around i thought about what 
my investment committee where, you know, they start talking about what they read in the paper. Mm. And you can spend a lot of time on what you read in the paper and you've just missed out of two or three places that you could really be thinking about. And so I thought, well, how do you, how do you manage that stakeholder position? And I think we started talking about it, Philip, but I'm, Philippe, but I'm interested in it because I thought, is it ensuring that you said you have to own the risk, but the trustee has to own the risk as well? Yes, he does. And so is it a matter of them understanding what the key risks are that they should be concerned about and then how to appropriately monitor those and why they should be concerned about it? So is it a, is it a do we have to join the dots between your view about what the key risks are so that the stakeholders on the other side know what the key risks are so they don't spend time, you know, annoying you saying, what do you think about Trump's latest tweet or, or, or spending an order amount of time in their own meetings, which has not going to add any value at all. Just That's absolutely right. I, I think what you, what your your governance needs, they need they need a heat map of risks. So, you, a priori, you you have a, a risk distribution in your portfolio. You have an understanding of it. It's not a perfect understanding, but you have an understanding of it, and they have to own that understanding. That has to be shared, and then then the conversation can be. Well, are we within risk parameters and tolerance levels? Yes or no. Are we looking at something that's structurally decaying or not? And that's a very difficult question. It's, it's, it's not one where you're going to come up with an instantaneous answer. You're going to have a lot of ICs about a particular investment that might have that profile. And, and then it kind of simplifies um, your problems. Unless you're looking at a big structural change. I, I, I admit that I sympathize. I, I would not know how to justify holding negative coupons in, in actual sovereign bonds that I have, I have taken deliveries of. That, that, that would require a lot of, of thinking and talking, um, which I guess a lot of you have to do. Philippe, when you're, when you're dealing with your customers or clients, how much it seems to me that the most important discussion is around those risks. Yes. So how much time do you spend talking about the risks and then wanting to understand that as opposed to this performance I've just got in the last sort of three months? So is it, is it disproportionate that you're spending not enough time on the risks and too much time on the short-term performance in your discussions that you have? Well, we're, we're, most of our stakeholders, we've gotten to the point where we're, we spend most of our time discussing risk and, and alpha profile or structural issues and very little um, regarding the general zeitgeist and what's going on or not going on at the geopolitical level. Um, I think managers often use geopolitical events to avoid difficult conversations, right? I mean, Trump did it to me. Uh, and, and you can find sympathetic ears very quickly if you say that in certain circles. You have to be careful who you're talking to because some people won't like it. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's an easy way to avoid the hard work of looking at the risk in your portfolio, at the structure of the returns, and structural issues that may have cropped up uh, in, in the world. But they have to be of a structural nature. And I go back to rates because rates is really interesting. I mean, this is, this is, this is a very unique moment, um, as in we're, we're not looking at having negative rates for a year, a year and a half. We're coming up on a, on a decade in some places. And can, we, can you expand on that a little bit, Peter? Because I mean, what you're saying is very clear, but.
but we're also currently issued 17 trillion US dollars on negative yields, 17 trillion. You've got your neighbor, Austria, on 100-year bonds, already been reissued at 50% discount again. You've got the Fed overnight saying, and the World Bank overnight saying that we're going negative in the US. So regardless of what you personally think, as it's ridiculous, isn't that geopolitics playing a real momentum game in where investments are about to go? Well, I, I don't think it's geopolitics. I think it's, it's central banking. It's, it's, it's uh, monetary uh, management. And it, it, what it feels like is a government tax on, on asset management and savings. Um, if the government of France can raise 100-year bonds at negative, negative yields, they're basically saying to the savers in France or foreigners that are nice enough to, to buy French bonds, we're going to tax your savings. And, and that's, that's, a very different, that's a very different structural change. And, and I repeat, if you're playing momentum or futures contracts, it's one thing. If you actually own the paper, I, that, that's, that's, a very, that's a very challenging proposal. And, and, and again, it hasn't been going on for a year or two. Last time we, we, we had negative rates, I'd just gotten into the business in 1982, and it was in Switzerland, and it, it was really just for a year, a year and a half. We're not talking about a year, a year and a half. We're talking about we're coming up on a decade. And the effect of that on real returns overall is dramatic. So we're disappointed in risk premia, but we're disappointed in tons of other risk premias that exist and opportunities in the markets uh, because of this phenomenon. And I'm trying to wrap my head around it as to what it means, and I've, I've come to terms to what it means. It's a governmental tax on savings. Now, at, at the end of the day, net-net, if it continues, and why, why is it happening? Well, other people that are in other businesses will, will, have, to, will have to work on that, but I think demographics might, might have a big, big, um, big input. So you know, Japan's sort of at the forefront of this experiment, and they can't get rid of deflation, but they're certainly getting rid of people. Uh, Japan's lost, what, half a million people this year? And, and they're, you know, they're going to move up to every year from there to, to about a million and drop to 90 million people over the course of the next 25 to 30 years. And demographics of Europe are pretty poor. Demographics of the U.S. without immigration are poor. And demographics of Russia are poor. China's about to also have negative demographics. The only positive demographics are Africa, and we know it's positive to eventually super positive <laughs> because of the craze, and, and India. And again, this is sheer speculation on my part. This is not what I do for a living, but I'm trying to make sense of this particular structural change because it is structural. It, it, it's, not, it's not a temporary phenomenon. Well, there's an interesting question that sort of comes back to this, which is anonymous, unfortunately, you're hoping we have some names here, but it's how do you differentiate between momentum and trend created by economic agents or trading agents versus government agency? And that's sort of a different sort of understanding, different structural change. Ooh, discombobulating um, trend or momentum uh, per actors in the marketplace, that's, that's not something we've, uh, we've managed to do. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure it would be profitable to do so, it might be, but we've, we've, we've not done that, so I can't, I can't answer that question. Okay. I'm not aware of it. 
Well, I'm curious, if we go back to, to risk, right? If, if we think about risk, we talk about demographics, we talk about QE being negative. You know, you've got all these different types of risks that we think about, but then we, we simplify it into one number, technically. It's just the vol target that most investors set for a manager. Mm. Yes. How relevant and, and valuable is that vol target when you're thinking about all these risks? Well, the stuff I mentioned is, is long-term. It's been going on for a while, and it's probably going to go on for more um, time. And these are not the kind of risks that you can address in one full fell swoop. Uh, in the interim, the only way that we found to control our portfolios was through appropriate risk metrics for business. And then to monitor that and be patient uh, with any business uh, that has a individually a 0.5, 0.6 sharp, uh, because we know the distributions are nasty. Um, we, we haven't found uh, another framework. Machine learning is interesting in that respect. We'll, we'll, we'll see if you, know, you can actually allocate through machine learning more efficiently and, and distribute your risk across the portfolio. Uh, we haven't cracked that problem yet, but, but we're working on it. Um, it. It might one day actually be appropriate at the, at the asset owner level. Um, I, I, I think we're, we're far away uh, for that to be the case at the asset owner level, but one day I think that might also be a, an appropriate framework. As we just sort of further on, on the whole vol discussion, you know, if, if you think about managers, uh, sorry, asset owners as they apply to managers and they set a vol target, you know, if we think about the backdrop of QE and, and negative rates and what it does to the markets and this being a, almost a structural change, you know, how do you then explain to, to managers in terms of using vol, which is based on historical vol, let's say we're, you know, vol's been suppressed now because of QE versus historical um, sort of 15 vol for a market? Is that about a reasonable number? Yeah, 15 vol for an equity worldwide, yeah. And so as you think about asset owners, I know there's been discussions from some asset owners previously where they say, well, the vol's too low in your, in your fund, right, versus what the market, you know, what we're getting in the market. And so how do you try and have that conversation around risk where, it comes back to my original question on vol, where vol is, is too low because it's, an, it's, a, it's a number that represents you know, past vol but doesn't represent the future. How do you try and map those two together? Well, we try and actually target and realize the vol. So as opposed to just targeting it, we, we like to, on average, realize it. Um, and in certain businesses, it's, it's difficult to realize it. And, and the temptation is to, to push it uh, in order to get to the actual targeted vol. That's okay if you're dealing with a, a futures portfolio um, where uh, the, the, the financing is cheap, the liquidity is high on the financing, uh, and it's centralized on the exchange. There's some constraints associated with borrowing securities from counterparties uh, and leveraging portfolios to 800, 900% uh, to go after signals that are on an unlevered basis relatively modest. Um, so uh, in general, we want to realize our vol uh, within you know, some, some leeway. Um, and we haven't found it to be a problem other than in businesses where you're going to start taking leverage, uh, which is not prudent when dealing with individual counterparties, um, or if you're dealing with businesses that have negative tails. If, if you know, you're selling ball for a business, uh, you, you want to control the, the, 
ball of ball into portfolio as opposed to targeting some, some ball and levering up just to get to, to the realized ball of the portfolio. So, so when you think about risk, should, should there be almost a, a re-quantification of, of risk in terms of economic agents versus political agents? What does that mean? In terms of market risk from economic factors versus other political factors that are out there, being the geopolitical impact, structural changes on markets, because QE or Federal Reserve sort of policy is also a political agent effectively. It, it is, but if, if you look at the last 10 years and you say, look, yeah, we've had five events where the, the Fed's provided um, essentially a put to the marketplace and, and use that as a framework, well, that's, that's five data points that are all tails. It's very, very difficult uh, to build a framework of risk built around five data points that are tails. So we need a bit more of a, a, a richer environment in terms of data to build a framework that's a bit more robust. We, we, we'd all like to be able to manage the tails away, uh, but we found that you can't. And the most prudent thing to do is to actually size and diversify your portfolio in a manner where the tail that you would experience is built in to what you've accepted in terms of risk. So if you, you short vol for a business, right, well, you know that one day you're going to have a tail. And what is that tail? Well, you can, you can design your portfolio and construct it so that when the big bad day happens, which could happen tomorrow morning or in a month or in five years, who knows, you are going to lose the risk budget and the tail that you accept. Continuing on that sort of that broader discussion of, of sort of structural change, there was a question here around sort of has there been any structural changes in trading momentum um, and has there been any observed change in alpha estimates in this strategy? Well, in its basic form, I, I, I don't think so. Um, I, think, I think momentum in its, its, its basic form, well implemented, et cetera, is probably at 0.5-ish sharp, 0.4 maybe. Um, and again, 0 0.4, 0 0.5, can have a distribution that feels great for three, four, five years because it's growing at a one, 1.2 sharp. Uh, but the reality is, and it's going to mean revert at one point to its historical mean of 0.5, and it'll underperform 0.5 for a while. Um, so uh, again, we try and find meaning uh, often in, in noise. Um, I, I don't think in, in in the case of momentum, there's been structural changes like negative rates. Can, can, we, can we obviously talk about momentum's performance in the last week in terms of that, that discussion of, uh, was it seven or eight standard deviation change in momentum and a change? And you know, what helps to explain that premise? Disorder. Um, yeah, no, we, it, we've had a very violent um, two, three weeks, even month value momentum and, and, and quality to a certain extent. And you're right, these moves are, are giant moves as measured by historical uh, um, perspectives. <sighs> Trying to make sense of it, I don't know. Uh, was, was value really valuable? Was it, did it get really, really cheap after a period of 10 years of underperformance? Did people get scared when the market dropped and decided to really start allocating to value as a defensive move? You can develop a whole narrative around it, but it, I, I, last time we've seen these kinds of um, levels of churning white water in factors, 
was around uh, 08, 07, and it was different. Um, back then, it was really due to a balance sheet crisis on, on Wall Street. Um, they tend to be precursors to big down moves six, seven, eight months later in markets. But again, that's, that's based on one, two observations over time. So it's very flimsy. There's nothing you can, you can quantitatively do with that. Um, intuitively, would it indicate that people are, are really prepared to get out of the market really fast if, if, they, think, uh, if they think they're looking at the big one? Uh, probably, and, and this was a, a kind of uh, a geeky way of doing it, as in you know, sell, sell momentum and, and get into value. Um, perhaps people will be less, less sophisticated and simply sell the market at one point. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's going to happen, by the way. But what I'm trying to say is, even if that intuition is correct, within a quantitative framework, there's nothing you can really know how to do today. One final question. I know this next panel is ready to come up, but it sort of comes back to this, this point on the recent movement on momentum and sort of the greater systematic style trading, algorithmic trading, sort of a lot of strategies sort of falling on top of each other. Is that likely to create more volatility in markets as we're moving more to systematized trading and, and machine learning and so forth? Is that changing the structure of the market? Machines sometimes do weird things, no doubt about it. Uh, especially machine learning is a really strange field in that we, we don't understand the underlying reason that it works, right? So we train data sets, we have intuitions, but we don't have a supporting theory of complexity regarding how this actually produces results that are accretive. And that, that by the way, is a very uh, interesting field of sciences called the theory of complexity. Um, so when you look at, at some of these machine learning systems, when, when they skip a beat, uh, they skip it in a very spectacular fashion. Um, and hopefully we understand why they do. Uh, at least we've, we've bounded them in terms of risk in a manner where it, it, it's, it's manageable. Uh, but I, I, think, I think machine learning in, in the current state of the art, whether it's in finance, in medicine, uh, in the military, uh, is going to do things at times that we do not understand. That's not a comfortable place to be. Tends to use narrative to explain. But 